The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today has appeared in over 50 films and television productions. Among the most notable are three films with director Lawrence Kasdan, Silverado, Grand Canyon and Wyatt Earp. He's also appeared in several films with Academy Award winner Kevin Costner. Alan also co-starred with Robert Duvall in his Academy Award nominated The Apostle and again more recently in the Emmy Award winning AMC original miniseries Broken Trail where he received excellent reviews for the role of Marshall Bill Miller. He's also preparing to direct his first feature, The Midnight Hour, developed with screenwriter Stephen Graham. Set against the vibrant backdrop of Delta Blues, it's a powerful story of the bond between friends, one black and one white, tested to its core, that endures despite crossing racial lines during a time of great upheaval in America's history, the civil rights era. In this, the first of a new series charting the Western genre, Todd Allen brings his own work in the industry to the table in discussing the creativity and value of filmmaking in elevating the historical landmarks of American history. Todd Allen, welcome to you and welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, David. I'm so pleased that you are beginning this Western series with me, talking about the Western genre, and I know that you've been very involved in filmmaking in that area over the years. And to jump straight into it, I'd like to talk about the evolution of the Western genre from the 40s. Can you remember back in your childhood uh, looking at those sort of films and with a sort of retrospective of how important they were to yourself? Yeah, as a, a little kid... Back in those days, which seems like a long time ago, um, you know, uh, the Westerns were incredibly popular at that time, and and a lot of them were made. I mean, there was also a lot of bad ones made, but there were some fabulous ones made, too. And, you know, as a a little kid, you know, you you grow up and watch those kinds of programs, and, you know, that's... For my fifth birthday, I, I asked for you know a set of shafts and a and a, and a gun belt because because <laughs> I saw I saw John Wayne wear one and certainly those those kinds of programs had an impact on on kids of of my generation you know and and I can't say that I would sit and watch you know hours of black and white um, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans movies or or even Gene Autry movies although. You know, I did see some of that, but I, I was—I seem to have been drawn to a, a bit more dramatic, you know, affair. I would watch, uh, you know, early John Wayne movies and Robert Mitchum movies and 
things like that. I remember back in England, Todd, that we only had one channel back in those days, and it was the BBC, and the Western was the event of the weekend. Uh, uh, five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, it was always the, the, the main thing to look forward to. It was very, very popular. Have you ever considered why it was that the Western was so pivotal back in those days, beyond, beyond anything else? I, I've thought about that a bit. I mean, <clears throat> when, when Hollywood was cranking out Western programming, it was, by and large, because it was cheap to do. Um, they didn't have to have cities and towns and automobiles. And, uh, you know, when they were making those, uh, you know, little two-reelers in, back in the 40s and 50s, those movies were made out on the Paramount Ranch or the Warner Brothers Ranch, and all they had to do was go set up a camera and have some cowboys and, and you know, uh, it's where the the phrase "cut to the chase" came from. When the when the when the story sucked and the acting was terrible, <laughs> just cut to a horse chase, and then it was exciting again. Yeah. And <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, the, I I, th- I think that that genre of film was as important as it was because, in many ways, I, I think it communicated to the rest of the world. Um, what the American West was, even if it was hokey, you know, 1950s dialogue and, you know, cardboard characters and silly stuff, every now and then a great one would come along, like, you know, the the uh, the movie The Unforgiven, uh, not Clint Eastwood's movie, but the, the one with Burt Lancaster and Audrey Hepburn, and, uh, you know, that movie I think was made in 1960, and that's a powerful piece of film, and, and it's only when you really start looking, when you look into it a bit, that you see, you know, what was behind it. Well, that was John Huston, you know, directed that movie, and it was sort of out of out of the norm for him as a director. But when you look at the components of that movie, uh, it, it was a really important film, and it was really stark and different. And you know, the music was interesting, and you know, Audie Murphy played. Uh, a supporting role in it, and I think it was some of the best work Audie Murphy ever did in that movie. Looking back at those days, though, Hollywood was very different. The structure was very different. It was much more creative, and there was a lot more freedom. Perhaps that is one of the reasons why Westerns are not looked upon as being so important these days, because, being frank about it, Hollywood is, and the studios are much more uh, led by bean counters now than the creators that you saw back in those days. Well, I, I, I think that's true. Uh, I, I do think that's true, and I also think that that you know, in most cases, they don't really know how to do them. They they didn't grow up on them. Um, like you got to remember, many of the executives at studios and networks are in their twenties uh, and thirties, and they didn't grow up on westerns, and they don't really understand them. They're more interested in you know, uh, a procedural cop show or, you know, a, a Terminator franchise or something like that, you know, a comic book. And, you know, a Western presents a different set of problems. And it's also, you know, at its best, I think it was in many ways uh, a simplistic black and white view of society and of america and that that shifted you know it it, it you know the, the way america both views itself and is viewed by the world has shifted 
And that's why, you know, a movie like, um, you know, Clint Eastwood's uh, Unforgiven, that movie came along like a lightning bolt. But you got to remember, Eastwood sat on that movie for 10 or 12 or 15 years, and, you know, until he felt ready to make it and old enough to make it and, and all of that. But that, that movie was a throwback. That, that was a very much in the, in the vein of a classic Western you know, and, do, you, do you um, think it? Do you think it succeeded in revitalizing the genre, or was it just a temporary solution? I think, at best, it was a temporary uh, solution because Hollywood viewed that as an aberration. They they viewed it as well. It's Clint Eastwood, of course. You know, uh, they didn't deal with the fact that it was a great movie and a great script and a great story, and it was well told and won a boatload of Oscars. They viewed it as as really an aberration. So every time, every, every you'll notice every few years, somebody will make a good western, and there'll be about six months of activity, where all of a sudden everybody says, "Hey, find us a western." And typically, what happens is it gets into the development process, and if there's a studio involved or there's a you know a big you know big umbrella involved like that, somebody in there screws it up because they start trying to mess with it. They don't really understand it. They just think, look, if we can put Brad Pitt in some tight chaps and a, and a good-looking hat, there's our movie. And that is not what, that's, that's not what it is. Yeah, and you have to say that if Clint Eastwood, with his power in the industry, cannot really revitalize it, who could? Uh, excellent question. I, I don't know who could. There's about three or four guys now that both, the, I think, the public... And and I think the industry largely looks to to periodically deliver a great western, and that would you know those are Eastwood, uh, Costner, Duvall, and I you know I really can't I'd be hard pressed to think of anybody else. If you look back though at those at the forties and fifties and even into the sixties, you had Audie Murphy and you had John Wayne and Jack Palance. They were their presence was quite enormous, prolific. They really devoted their whole careers to westerns. Would you not agree? Well, I, I would, and you could you could throw in you know Jimmy Stewart, and you could you could throw in Gregory Peck, who did some phenomenal westerns, and and uh, you know I mean clearly John Wayne is the iconic western actor figure, but man, there was you 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 go back and comb through some of those movies, and you'll see working all the time, uh, you know Robert Mitchum, Lee Marvin, uh, Richard Boone. Um, you know, Ben Johnson, guys like that that were, you know, ultimately went on to be, you know, incredibly popular guys and huge movie stars in their own right. They worked their tail off. They, they were making three to four films a year at, at one more. stage. Yeah. Even more. I, I, you know, that's, that's the one area of the business that I wish, you know, would revert a bit to... Uh, not that I want to be under contract and be doing schlocky stuff that I don't want to be doing, but but that was how actors earned you know earned their keep and learned their craft. They just went to work all the time, and now uh, you know they're few and far between. You know, there's some guys that do one movie every three years. They just make enough money to be able to live those other two years. Um, but I don't think that's the best way to go by any means. 
Going back to your remark, though, those were diff very different years for America. America was still the American dream. We have somewhat found ourselves confused now in our society and in the world. We are certainly not perceived as owning that vision anymore. So uh, we do have a different set of iconic figures now who are fighting so many different principles here in in making films that must be extraordinarily difficult to be able to make films in this genre anymore when you've lost that passion uh, you know it, it, it I, I think it must be you know and it's uh, it, it puts enormous pressure on everybody um the, gone are the days i mean you got to remember when america came out of world war Two. Uh, you know, many of those actors had had uh, gained some notoriety in the service. Jimmy Stewart was a bomber pilot, and uh, you, you know those guys all. Sir Lee Marvin was a Marine, a decorated Marine, and those guys, the 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 interest in them was in who they were. You know, they they wanted to see Lee Marvin in a western. They wanted to see Lee Marvin in you know a, a gritty cop drama. The same thing was true of Jimmy Stewart. You know, he that guy could do in almost any role in any movie, and and he was he was loved for whatever he was doing. I mean, it was rare that they would that that they would misfire completely. And I, I think that you know, yeah, I, I do think there was a shift certainly. It, do you, in the '60s and, the, and and maybe the early '70s, in how America was viewed and and in what was you know palatable to the viewing public, and you, I mean, if you start looking at westerns in particular, you you know when you get to a movie like The Wild Bunch, and I can't remember the exact date of that movie, but I, I want to say '72 or you know something like that around the yeah. yeah I mean that, that's. That's that's a counterculture movie. That's not a John Wayne movie. You know, it's not a classic Jimmy Stewart. You know, western. That is a group of former soldiers whose you know the West has passed them by, and they've got a skill set that they employ for you know less than honorable purposes. It was really interesting. You know, you but. You you loved those guys because of who they were. You loved William Holden. You loved Ernest Borgnine, Robert Ryan, all those guys in that movie. What's the difference between the way that the public looks at those actors and the actors today, Todd? I mean, is there a difference between actors who are uh, have devotees and actors who have fans? You know, the actors still have fans, and there's still fan sites and fan clubs and stuff. I think the difference is... There, in the old days, if you were a big enough star, the publicity machine would spin the story up the way they wanted it. And, and, you know, that's, I mean, you know, for God's sake, look at, look at, you know, Rock Hudson's life. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's over because of, uh, of the immediacy of, of video and footage and YouTube and the internet and you know you you can't you almost can't do anything now without it appearing on on the internet within you know a matter of minutes sometimes so I think that 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 whole uh, you know adoration part of 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 the fans you know it still exists but it's man it's different you know you've you've <laughs> you have to 
you have to manage yourself pretty well these days. Before we launch into the 60s, where we, we had films like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, can we talk about the locations that they sure. would use, that Houston would use, uh, you know, the Monument Valley areas in New Mexico, Texas, I, and I provided all these in, in our notes together, and, you know, the 70-millimeter paradigm. It, it, it was a different world then, and yet w were the, the results not so unbelievably striking back in those days, considering the equipment they used and considering that they did not have the technology that we have today? You know, it, 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 it makes it... Uh almost incredible when you think about how they made those movies. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a book uh, on John Ford, and they, you know, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes photographs and, um, about how they made those movies in Monument Valley, and they would literally go in and set up a tent city. Uh, they were way out in the middle of the desert with no, no hotels, no nothing, so they would set up a, a, a you know, a a mess tent, and a, uh, then the sleeping tents, and then they would set up the, you know, the gambling tent and the bar. And, I mean, it was, they really would create this tent city with no air conditioning out in the middle of the desert. And, and they'd go huddle up and make, make these great films. Well, that, that's indicative even more of that post-war generation that traveled through the Second World War, and they sure. learned, learned so much from being out in the field. Sure. You just, you know, you sort of you know, get up and go do it. And, and it, it was, uh, you know, in many ways, it, some, of, some of that is still, it's one of the things that I love about the film business is as, as much as we've advanced and as much as technology is just leaping forward and the cameras have gotten smaller and all that stuff has happened, there still is that moment where some guy has to carry a, a, a a case full of equipment up the side of a mountain to get a camera onto a little bitty ledge to get a shot of an actor before the sun sets. Probably the DP. Portion. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's one of the things I love still is it's a very hands-on business, and, 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 when you're, and the problems always change. They're always different, and it's no different making a movie now, you know, forgetting about the technology part of it, than it was 50 years ago. They still had to figure out how to get that shot before the sun went down. Dig. You're not digging. If you shoot me, you won't see a cent of that money. Why? I'll tell you why. Because there's nothing in there. You thought I'd trust you? $200,000 is a lot of money. We're going to have to earn it. Moving into the 60s, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I... I put this in our notes because I think that it was one of the most formidable films of that era, uh, that uh, I Italian feel. Where did that change the paradigm at that stage? You, you have Clint Eastwood coming into the scene, a completely different individual, a different makeup from those before him back in the 40s and 50s. How, how do you see that feel, that tone and manner changing the, the, the feel of the, the filmic experience? You know that those those movies are 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 so interesting because they were so different. Um, uh, 
you got to remember, Clint Eastwood was not the first choice. Um, I think the first choice for those roles was an actor named Ty Harden, who was a big movie star in the 50s and had gone over to Europe and was making, you know, European films, and Sergio Leone wanted him. And I think Ty was tied up on another film or a television show or something, and he couldn't do it. So they ended up with Clint Eastwood, and there you have it. <laughs> but, but, the, but that tone was indicating a shift, was it well, not? It, it was it, indicating a shift from uh, an Italian director who who is now standing up out of the the ditch and looking down at America rather than Houston and John Wayne who were true Americans. Yes, but but Sergio Leone will tell you that he got his much of his inspiration from those John Ford films. And and just in the 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 the, the look of the photography and and all of that what he did was change the game up rather tremendously. I mean, if you go back and you look at some of those old movies, there was so much talking. You know, everybody talked. There was just dialogue, 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 and that was very much a product of the 50s. Um, you know, it, it probably came from, you know, playwrights who were used to writing plays for off-Broadway and Broadway, morphing into film film writing. And so everybody talked, 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 talked. But Sergio Leone came along and put some really interesting music over, you know, a, a sequence. And Clint Eastwood didn't open his mouth for a long time. And he course, didn't say very much in those movies. And, of course, you saw a change in camera angles, camera, yeah. camera movement. You went away from the static camera on a tripod to a, a lot of handheld stuff sure. at that stage. And you went, and, you know, he went for those great big close-ups, you know, and he would, like, and it, it, it was just... It was so interesting for American audiences to see it because nobody had ever done that before. And all of a sudden, you know, you'd go to this extreme close-up of somebody's eyes, you know, and, and like a, a, a fly would crawl across their ear. And, you know, and it was all in super close focus and the music was playing and it was, it was fascinating stuff. And that's where you start looking at lyrical flow in a story writer in a in a dp in a cinema photographer that you didn't really have in the old movies you, you had music which was very um uh, dynamic but you didn't have those special as you say close-ups that that special music that that would be so much in sync with a particular shot a particular scene yeah yeah i think the difference is the the you know it's one thing to have a beautiful score that that is an undercurrent, you know. Uh, but the way Leone would do it was the music became literally became part of the story, and so you know it would it was in the way that he used it, it would drive the story forward dramatically. And you know that that was one of the things that was really interesting about it. I put down in my notes, uh, and these the actors that really came to mind in that era: Lee Van Cleef, Clint Eastwood. Now, what do you think that they offered that the earlier actors didn't? What was their perspective? They were post-war now. They were coming into the filming experience in the soaring 60s. They were probably in that confusing area where you, you saw America go from the 1950s uh, Cold War era into, the, into that lust of the 1960s. Do you, you, do you think that that came to be a part of the, the the basis for this filmmaking? 
You, you know, yeah, I think the movies changed because the the viewpoint changed. It was no longer good enough to just take a, a, a America's hero, Audie Murphy, and put him in a, a, a mediocre Western and everybody would clap at the end of it because it was Audie Murphy. And, um, you know, you got to remember in the some, somewhere in the in the late 50s, he was um, Universal's biggest box office star. And it was really interesting, you know. I mean, there's a guy that that really wasn't that great an actor, but, but man, if you're going to bring some publicity to the game, you might as well bring the Medal of Honor. And so, so you know, by the time we got to those other, the other movies and, and you know, moved from the, the 60s into the 70s, I think the viewpoint had changed, and I think that the films reflected it. Um, uh, you know, they didn't they, they didn't make Liberty Valance anymore. They made the Wild Bunch. You know, Brando's Brando's movie One Eyed Jacks is one of my all time favorite films, and you know there are uh, legions of, of devoted fans to that movie, and that's a very different kind of movie. Well, not a typical Western at all. Well, of course, the storytellers, the authors behind it, uh, they were very much influenced by the years in the 60s with Vietnam. Yeah. And they had already been influenced by Korea, but Vietnam was a huge influence. And then, the, you know, the, you go into the 70s and yet another period in our culture where, where things begin to change again. So you can see through filming generally and especially the Western, that, that it is very much influenced by the times and the social historian or the social history uh, scale. The, oh, I the, think so, for sure. And I, it's, it's actually, you know, now that we're talking about that, it's, it's one of the things that makes me um, as excited as I am now to develop some really great Westerns. Um, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting time in America, again. Uh, I think... I think that if you can stay true to the 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 ideals of a great western yet yet make it you know as meaningful as it needs to be and not cardboard and um i i think I think the time is is really ripe i mean i i, I think I told you before i've got I've got several of them uh in in development we're now on to the nineteen seventies and we will come back to that. Now we're seeing in the 1970s the Western genre really beginning to diminish. Yes, you had the made-for-television shows still hanging in there, but it really was abrupt the way that it came to an end. And that was a there was a great sadness around that. I, I certainly back in the UK where westerns were featuring as the pivotal point of people's uh, weeks, the end of the week, and and it almost appeared as if they went overnight. Um, have you ever considered that? Uh, it, it seems so amazing that anything in life, uh, y you know, usually things have a gradual downfall. They they fade out slowly. But the Westerns really was an abrupt end. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I haven't thought about it in those terms um, so much. But but I, I would say that was probably true. And I, I think it was, you know, it, it was uh, an art form that everybody, at least the 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 powers that be in Hollywood probably thought, well, you know, we've been making these things for 30 years and it's, it's time to bury them and they don't make any money. And, and, 
you know, you got to remember, in the early days, they were the cheapest thing that could be made, and I think that began to change. I, I think it began to change. It suddenly became more expensive to recreate that period. And, um, and now it, it's really quite expensive to make a Western, and that, that's why more of them aren't made. Uh, you know, the, the second part of that is probably that, that, you know, people aren't creating good enough stories to get made. So, you know, the ones I have are, are very much, you know, throwback kind of movies, but they're, they're the kinds of movies that Robert Mitchum would have made and, and you know, um, uh, Lee Marvin and, and, you know, those guys. So it, it all starts with the stories, but, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm off the point there a little bit, but I, I would say that, that it probably, it, they probably became financially less easy to make than they had been for 25 years, 30 years. There's a great irony behind that, given that films deliver st such a strong message, not only in this country, but abroad. And it could be that by bringing back the Western genre now, it could be a saving grace in maintaining the values that America still hangs on to and the well, value man, values of the founding uh, fathers. You, you are, uh, you're preaching to the choir here, my friend. <laughs> I mean, that, that is that is in the mission statement really for my company is to tell stories like that and i i mean let me just back up a, a half a beat here and say that i think some of it also was in those days the movies were typically uh, you know more classic westerns black and white good versus evil you knew who the good guys were and you knew who the bad guys were and People cheered and loved those for a long time, and as America moved out of that period, and you know you're dealing with Vietnam and you're dealing with you know unrest at home and and political things and you know Watergate and and all of those things. I think that you know as America began to question who it was, those movies were no longer really that viable because they were too clear cut. They were too easy to say, well, that's the bad guy, and we were entering a time, you know, that lasted for quite a while. And it was probably compromised at the same time by what we've already spoken about, the change in the attitude of the big studios from creativity, story-driven uh, material into a more financially driven engine. Yeah. Looking now then at the 90s, we have Unforgiven, Wyatt Earp, and I think that we've already agreed that they were transitory. They they didn't really uh, reignite the passion for the Western genre. But my goodness me, Unforgiven was an amazing film. <laughs> it, it certainly was. You know, everything about that movie. Um, and I actually read that script years before they made the movie. And the title of it was not Unforgiven. It was, um, it was called Whore's Gold. Um, yeah, um, and it was even, if you can believe it, it was even a little hard, harder-edged and rougher than the movie they made. But yeah, that was, that was great filmmaking. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. Yeah. Well, I guess they had it coming. Well, 
we all have it coming. Uh, you know, I was going to say great Western filmmaking, but that's not uh, true. It's great filmmaking. It just happened to be that he made a Western. And the beautiful part of it was the story was great. The screenplay was great. The acting was phenomenal. The cinematography was phenomenal. You know, it won Best Picture for a reason. I always wonder, given that Clint Eastwood directed that as well as, as starred in front of the camera, how th that works, Todd. You may be able to give me some perspective on that. And I have wondered this for years, how you can manage both of those roles. I always remember that Kenneth Branagh received so much attention and criticism for not being able to handle that directorial role as well as act in front of the camera, but Clint Eastwood has appeared to be an absolute master in that area. You know, uh, my, my hat's off to anybody that, that tackles that. Uh, you know, I've got a movie I want to direct, but I sure as hell don't want to star in it at the same time. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's. Uh, I've worked with Costner a couple of times when he was directing himself. I worked with Duvall and the Apostle when he was directing himself. And, uh, you know, usually, and these guys I think would say this to you, usually something suffers, uh, one or the other, because you can't, you can't keep your eye on yourself and keep your eye on the camera as well. But there's, there's not a whole lot of evidence in Unforgiven to suggest that there was any compromise along the way. I, I, I don't believe so, but that was, that was the perfect storm of a, a man who was ready to tell that story and his style. This is one of the reasons I think Eastwood connects so well with Western material that he directs. He, his style is very lean and spare and stark and nobody talks very much and when they do their words have meaning and you, you know you set up a rain machine and have a guy ride down the street you know with some ominous music in the background and it's it's powerful stuff and you wonder actually given that that eastwood was in those earlier iconic films of the, of the early 60s how he developed this strategy for Unforgiven. I mean, you, you mentioned he spent years on this. You, you wonder how he decides how to go away from that Italian style of filmmaking, or whether he decides to go back towards the old-fashioned, very strong cinematic style. Yeah, you know, that, that would be an interesting question. I'd love to hear his answer to that. I mean, I, I know that, that, you know, you can't, you can't work with Sergio Leone as long as he did, and not not learn from that. Um, but Eastwood, I think, has said in the past that he really learned how to direct film from, from Don Siegel. And Don Siegel was, you know, kind of his mentor. And they did a lot of work together. Um, you know, and Siegel was known for, you know, no BS, uh, uh, simple, spare, you know, let's shoot it. And that's Eastwood's style, man. I mean, he, he will... You know, if if it takes too long to light a set, he'll just shoot it anyway. He'll just say, "Hey, okay, guys, that's long enough. Everybody, move out of the way." Okay, action. <laughs> what is that saying about him? Is that saying that he's more interested, principally, in the story than he is in the technical? I think so. I think so. Now we we are going to touch on Dances with Wolves, a phenomenal film, not necessarily pegged in the western genre but certainly in that era uh, Dances with Wolves huge budget film, an amazing film for Kevin Costner 
the style again was so different to anything else uh, in that period. What was Kevin thinking in those days? I wonder, always wonder, what it was that brought him to produce Dances with Wolves. You know, I, I do know this. I do know that he developed that script with Michael Blake, who wrote the novel. And Kevin had it in his mind early on that he was going to make that film. Um, my guess is he wanted to make his directorial debut, and he knew that. And and he so the, the, the story goes, I believe, that Michael Blake slept on his sofa for about a year. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they worked on that story, you know, day in and day out. And then, and then when they got ready to go, I think, I think uh, you know, Kevin being who he is, uh, he went out and made the movie he wanted to make. There was, in the past, a lot of criticism from think tanks, from organizations about the way that the Indian communities had been treated. And, and a lot of the films back in the 40s and 50s were hit really bad with that criticism as late as the 80s. What was Kevin attempting to do with the storyline, do you think, with the Indian community in that film? You know, I've never talked to him about that. Uh, so I, I don't know what was in his mind. I know that he has described that film as, you know, his love letter to the West. And that's an interesting statement. I mean, I, I, I don't think he would have developed those Indian characters the way he did had he not had something in his mind that he wanted to say. But uh, I think it's probably best to let him put that into his words. I, I don't know what that would be for him, but, uh, but I do know this. It was, whatever it was, it's certainly connected. And you, could, you can't sit and watch that movie and, and not be moved by, you know, those characters and the way they're portrayed and what they go through. And, you know, even even at the very end of the movie, when the, the warrior rides up to the top of the hill and he's so sad to see his friend go and he's screaming at the, you know, at the mountains. You know, that's it's powerful stuff, man. And I think, actually, that he was trying to talk to the heroic figures in any culture, in any area. And I think that he achieved that extremely well. Uh, I do, too. I do, too. Now we're on to 93-94, Tombstone Wyatt Earp. And again, we have a different category of actors and even storylines and even cinema photography. They were both very successful films, but again, they were transitory. They, they didn't stick, did they? They didn't. Um, they did not. Um, you know, Tombstone, uh, a lot of people like that movie. A lot of people like Wyatt Earp for different reasons. They're completely different in style and tone. Tombstone was made by, you know, an action director who I think did, you know, Rambo 3 or something. And, you know, you can tell it. I mean, it's just, you know, granted, you had phenomenal performances in that movie by Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer in particular. Uh, you know, I think that was Kilmer's, you know, best work in that movie but but Wyatt Earp was a, a more somber film uh, a more weighty piece of material than Tombstone was. and that that was very much the style of Lawrence Kasdan wasn't it very much yeah yeah well I've worked you know on three films or four films with with Larry and yeah I mean he's he he, he infuses that stuff into the movies he makes and it, and uh 
you know, he, he, I think he casts actors that deliver those things. And he said that to me one time that because when he directs, when Kasdan directs, he doesn't really say very much to you as an actor. And for me, I'm great, you know. I, I know what he's thinking, but there was a lot of actors on the set of Wyatt Earp that, that were going crazy because he doesn't say very much to you as a director. And they they assumed that that meant he didn't like what they were doing. And I said, no, you dumbass, that's just the opposite. If he, did, if, he, if he didn't like what you were doing, he'd have to come say something to you. I can, I can imagine you all hidden behind fences, behind the set, <laughs> or, or talking, you know, coming up with these, these ideas and these concepts and trying to psychologically evaluate how these directors oh, work sure, and second-guess them. You know, the, the, actor's, uh, the actor's nightmare, man. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say this about Wyatt Earp. It was, that was a really interesting film in that it's, it's, it's life began as, a, as like a 10-hour miniseries. And, um, you know, Kevin was going to do it as a miniseries, uh, which was really an interesting sort of bold choice for him because, you know, he was a big, huge movie star. And you, you weren't supposed to do things like go do TV. And he wanted to do it because of the strength of the story. And then uh, Larry Kasdan came in and got involved in it, and they decided to rewrite it into a feature. And um, Which is a strange way to go. Yeah, and it's a hard way to go because, you know, a miniseries is, is episodic in nature. And, you know, a feature film script isn't. So it, it became very difficult. In fact, one of the casualties was actually my character, um, in the miniseries script, man, I had a, there was a fabulous part there in, in the, in the film, not so much, you know, you don't, you don't, this guy shows up a lot and he's there a lot, but it, you really don't come to understand who he is and what he was. And so you, you have just offered the perfect segue for television productions and uh, in my notes, I had offered out Lonesome Dove and what that is an incredibly successful series. Texas. Yes, Texas. That's your favorite of me, and that's my favorite of you, too. I'm giving you a reason to go off on another adventure so you don't get bored being a rancher, which you ain't going anyway. You're one of a kind, Augustus. We're going to miss you. And it actually talks to what you've just been talking to, the the different values, the different story uh, methodologies between a film and a series. But Lonesome Dove... It, it was a phenomenal series that was almost a film in each part. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's you know I think it's some of the greatest television that's ever been made, and and you know work having worked with uh, Robert Duvall a few times, and, and you know being lucky enough to do that, you know he will tell you that he said this to me one time. He says, you know, um, Gielgud had Hamlet and Olivier had you know something else and i had lonesome dove i mean that to him right? that's <laughs> that's it that's the pinnacle for him um i think that's a character that that you know he connected with in a way that doesn't often happen for an actor did that set up the premise therefore for broken trail you know i, I don't know that it did you know i mean duvall is uh, he just has a love of of westerns and great storytelling and you know i mean if look if if people made more westerns today he'd be in he'd be in more you know but that's just him and uh i i think he's always trying to find a great story and broken trail was that it was it was a great little story and it, it, i will tell you they had a very hard time getting that 
that program sold at a very hard time. And, it, and it's, you know, the, the, the consensus among networks and, you know, is what do we want to make a Western for? And it's very difficult, I'm telling you. Surely, so, surely though, that, that was contrary to to what success they saw in Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove was one of the highly distributed programs on television. I think it was distributed throughout the world. Did they not learn from that success? Apparently not. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, look, I'll tell you, the, the, the number one and number two highest rated movies in, in cable television history are both Westerns. And, and you would think that, that that alone would be enough to make those guys develop them, and they just, they just don't. Um, Going back to your previous statement, what is it that you would like to achieve having been involved in many productions and certainly being involved with, with Robert Duval, which must have been quite an amazing experience? What is it that you want to do now to relight that Western genre? You know, I, I, I think it's going to take somebody like myself. I, I, and don't, don't, don't let that sound arrogant. I don't mean it in that way. I mean that it's going to take somebody that is old enough to remember the great ones. And you, make yourself, you, you make yourself sound as if you're an octogenarian. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm, uh, I, I feel that way today, man. <laughs> Um, uh, I've had a rough schedule lately. But, uh, you know, I think it's going to take somebody like myself or, or a guy like Costner that, that has a love of, of, of those stories and those things and yet, and yet has the ability to, to go fight the battles that it takes to get something like that made. I mean, uh, for me, I, I, I've got an idea to, to you know, do a, a series of, of two-hour television movies uh, that are westerns. And what I'd like to do is, is kind of do what, what John Wayne and John Ford and those guys used to do. Well, not Ford so much, but, you know, when in the, during the time when Wayne was making, you know, Rio Lobo and Rio Bravo and all of those movies, those are pretty dang good movies. And they were shooting those in Mexico for nothing. And they would finish one, you know, everybody would go get drunk for three days, and they'd start <laughs> another one. Are you aspiring to be the modern-day Houston? I can't say that, man. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't. Yeah, you don't I, have to I, respond. I can't say that, but I, I, I tell you what, uh, it would be uh, a major achievement and a major feather in my cap if if people viewed me and my company as the place to go when you want to get a good Western made. Um, that's That's my hope. Working with actors like Robert Duval and looking back on your time with them, what do you think that you have most learned from them in, in any area of life, whether it's filmmaking off the set in, in personal terms? What are the most striking things to you? Mm. You know, um, confidence. Confidence. Um, you know, I'm, that I, I found myself having to go toe-to-toe with those guys in, in dramatic scenes and and I and I did it, and that I, I think that's probably what I walked away with was like, okay, you know, I I, uh, I, I didn't you know fold up like a like a newspaper. <laughs> I, did, I did okay, and so there's there's that you know I learned stillness. I've learned stillness 
you know. Can uh, you can you express that uh, as an actor? Yeah, just just being okay to be in in a moment where you don't have to do something or or move or speak or do anything. It's that it's it's okay to just be there, and I learned that from from Kevin. You know, he's very. He's very good at that, and uh, you know, it's it's the trick is n- not appearing flat, you know, like you're not thinking or you're not involved. So, you know, it's it's a dangerous it's a dangerous moment sometimes for an actor to to just let the cameras be there with you. Um, and I think the trick to that is, you know, you may not be doing anything, but boy, are you involved in that whatever that moment is. And the camera doesn't lie, you know. It's it's. You know the old what's the old line about make you have to make friends with the camera. It's it's very true. If you look at these individuals that we've been talking about, you look at the public. You look at the, Texas. You're you're in Austin at the moment, an amazing part of the world. What is your perspective? What is your position on just how well received? the Western genre would be again now at this stage when we are in a, a very shaky world, as it were, especially in this country? You know, uh, it, it remains to be seen, but, but my feeling is that, and I hear this all the time, I hear this all the time, that the public is clamoring for good Westerns. It's the people that make movies the, the the guys at the network and the guys at the studio that don't think they're viable, and so my answer to that is, well, um, then we're going to go forth without you, and 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 make them and make them for a budget, and I, I don't believe they have to cost seventy five or a hundred million dollars. I think I can make a kick ass western with a list actors in it for you know between five and, and ten million dollars. What is and it, what, if you do that, I think the the paradigm for one to become really successful increases dramatically. What are the other reasons behind that, though? In in terms of your passion for the for America, yes, the passion for making the films and the stories, and bringing all these great people onto the set and producing something magnificent in in every way, cinematic, story driven in every way. But w- what else is it? Because I'm interested, knowing that film has a huge impact on people, and certainly today will have a huge impact on people who are looking for something very striking, something very confidence-boosting? Bo- uh, uh, well, if, if, if you're asking me, you know, what about my motivations for wanting to, you know, to make those kinds of films, you know, in a global sense, it, it is that, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that, that I feel like America is in... Uh, one of those periods that we go through, you know, throughout history and throughout our history, where we're sort of struggling to find our way and figure out who we are, you know, uh, from where we sit today. And I, I think that I think that probably, you know, um, impacts me in that way. That that I believe, and I'm not saying that. I want to go back and make a, you know a cardboard cutout of a movie where you know everything is black and white and you know the good guys win and because the world isn't that way. But um, I think that uh, it, it, 
I think it, that there is an enormous appeal for an audience to sit back for a couple of hours in a darkened theater and have a shared experience and watch, you know, great storytelling that I, has, that says something about the way of you know the way things used to be and it, you know if if it connects people with their childhood again or connects them with something they remember from from when they were little you know an, an experience with their father like I had you know where he he would take me to a John Wayne movie at a, you know on a matinee at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday and you know if if you can reconnect with that a little bit then you know who knows maybe in some small way. Um, uh, and, and secondly, the, the, the second part of that would be, you know, film being the export that it is from America communicates to the rest of the world who we are. And so that's in the back of my mind, too. Uh, I, I feel like that there is a, I do feel like there's an audience for it overseas. And, you know, again, that, that runs counter to what Hollywood will tell you. But I think there's a market for it. And... So, you know, I, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but... I, I believe you did uh, very well, actually. And in the last two minutes of the program, I would love to ask you your very best memories. Um, looking back at the Western, looking back at film, looking back at your life, looking at uh, recent years and what you are accomplishing as a film actor. Oh, man. Um, it's a, I, it's a lot to, to answer for two minutes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to. I'd have to say, you know, watching. Uh, you know, my father was not the, the the movie fanatic in my family. It was my mother, and but yet she, you know, sort of trained him to love movies. And you know, he was a big fan of John Wayne pictures, and he was a big Mitchum fan, and Gregory Peck, and he became a, a Marlon Brando fan after my mother, you know, threatened him, and. Um, <laughs> And uh, and made him watch uh, on the waterfront, and you know he, uh, he I remember this. I'll just tell you this. Uh, he he woke me up one night on a school night when I was probably I don't know six seven six years old, and and I, had, I was already in bed. And he he came down and woke me up on a school night at about ten o'clock at night, and we sat up until one o'clock in the morning and watched One Eyed Jacks and ate popcorn, you know, and. Uh, and it was, I just remember it like it was yesterday. And, you know, those kinds of things are, are, what, are what drives me, really. And, but, you know, so as a, as a, as a six-year-old, for my birthday, I, I, asked, I don't know if you remember the pants that, that Brando wore in that movie. But oh, they yes. Were, they were kind of cavalry pants with a yellow stripe, and they had uh, silver conchos from the knee down. And I'm, uh, I asked for those pants for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get them? No. Oh. <laughs> no. And I'm still pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe but, you could go out and get them now from Dillard's. Yeah, well, you know, don't be surprised if you see me wearing something like that in the Western. <laughs> I'll but, be there with but, a camera. Uh, you know, it's things like that, and it's things like, uh, you know, watching uh, John Wayne and, and, and Montgomery Clift and Red River and, and seeing that dynamic. And, um, you know, those are... Liberty Valance had a, had a, a big impact on me because, you know, it, it dealt with some pretty heavy stuff. And you know, if you if you really dig into that movie a little bit, it's it's uh, you know it's about the the rule of law and how education actually changed the West. And you know, uh, uh, John Wayne being the tough guy with the gun uh, is the one that was forgotten. 
and 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 you know died a, a pauper. And Jimmy Stewart goes on to become the senator. And you know there was, there's some interesting interesting stuff in those movies. And they're not they're not just shoot 'em up. Um, you know, okay, let's ride let's ride a herd of uh, you know a, a, a you know a bunch of Comanche down the hill and, and attack everybody. That's not what those movies are about. They're they're great stories and they're about something, and that's what drives me. I, I think that, um, and I think that's probably why I, I disagree so much with the way Hollywood typically views a western. They, they view it like that, and they, and they want to. They start thinking about it, and they think, "Well, okay, we're going to make a western, but we got to we got to screw it up. We got to make it about women, or we got to make it a comedy, or we're going to make it about a black guy, or we're going to because they're not comfortable with what." those movies really are and uh, you know that's that's where i think you know presidio and myself and my company are going to you know hopefully change that dynamic a little bit because we're going to go make some todd allen film actor it has been a great uh, pleasure again having you on the program and i look forward to sharing these programs with you in the future and wish you so much uh, with your very heavy shooting schedule that you have out there in texas <laughs> Thank you very much, David. I appreciate it, and best of luck to you. And to our listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. Uh, this uh, program and any other program in the series, you can go to davidgibbons.org to find information on any of the programs that we have, and you can blog or provide feedback or questions for our guests. I'm sure that they'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have for them. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.